All right, you absolute legends, welcome to A Need to Read. My name is Ed and I'm the host. And today in this podcast, I come with a warning. It's not only is this podcast super informative and cool and fun, but at times it might just make you a little bit sad. And I just, I need to warn you because otherwise you listen to it and be like, oh Jesus Christ, that was depressing. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to listen to this and take it on board and think, hmm, how do I feel about that? And then work that out in your own time. But please do listen to it, even though the content of this is sad. There are lots of interesting facts about what potentially the future might look like, what's currently going on with the climate. And this is one of the most important topics of discussion uh, that I have on the podcast ever. And I know I've had lots and lots of discussions, but the ones about the climate the more and more I research it, seem to get more and more important. So please do enjoy it as much as you can. It's really interesting to understand from a scientific perspective what's happening, just so that then you can take that information on board and realise that the warnings that are coming from pretty much everywhere at the moment uh, are no joke. You know, that being said, guys, I still think it's a really good podcast, even though at times it can be a little bit sad. Bill Maguire is a I mean, he's an expert. He's worked on geophysical and climate hazards at the University College of London. He's written for The Guardian, The Times, The Observer, and the book that we're talking about today that he wrote is called Hot House Earth, An Inhabitant's Guide. And it is a brilliant book, and it is a clear wake-up call to what is happening. And you know what? You might want to read it. It's pretty short. Bill explains everything that's in the book in the podcast, which I hope you enjoy. Now... Should you wish to support the podcast, please feel free to do so by engaging with sponsors, signing up to the mailing list, sharing it with a friend or leaving a review. There's plenty of ways that you can do so. Even if you're feeling super generous and you're thinking, God, Christmas is around the corner. Ed's one of my favourite podcasters. Maybe you'd like to buy me a coffee. The option for that is in the description as well. But for now, please enjoy the conversation with Bill Maguire. Bill, welcome to A Need to Read. Thanks for, for coming on the show. It's nice to finally get to chat with you. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, so you've, you've come on, because I read your book, essentially, I read Hot House Earth uh, when I was going through a little bit of a, an education um, of, of what's actually happening with the planet, because shamefully, I, I had no idea, really. So I read Hot House Earth, and as shocking and sad in in parts as it was it was a really enlightening book uh so for people listening let's just sort of map out how you came to writing hot house earth and, and what your career has kind of led you towards yeah well the, the whole idea of the, this book which is the full title is hot house earth an inhabitant's guide which i think gives you an idea of what, what i'm getting at in it i the idea really came at the cop 26 climate conference in glasgow um, about this time last year, because all the talk was still about um, keeping the global average temperature rise since pre-industrial times below one and a half degrees centigrade, which is regarded as the dangerous climate change guardrail. Um, but it's it's been clear now for a few years, and certainly at Glasgow, that there's no chance in hell of us doing that. Um, if we're going to keep below that temperature rise, then emissions need to fall 45% um, within eight years by 2030. And uh, practically speaking, that is just not going to happen. So the whole point of the book really is saying, we're going to face dangerous climate change. We can't dodge it now. 
Um, so we will have to, at the same time as we try and slash emissions, we'll also have to seriously adapt to the new conditions that, that we're already seeing all around us. Yeah. And you, you, you come essentially bearing news and, and bearing a warning for us because we are all due to be living on this, on this hot house earth that probably is around the corner. Um, and that's, you're not just some guy who's saying, Hey, you guys need to listen to me. You've, you've been studying this for a while. So how's your academic career progressed as climate change has progressed over the years? Well, it sort of moved into climate science over the last um, 10, 15 years or so, because I, I started off as a geologist, but my first degree was in geology. Then I did a PhD in volcanology, working on Mount Etna in Sicily, um, which is a bit like a three-year walking holiday in the sun with nice pasta and red wine. Where you have to look at the rocks occasionally. Just, yeah, great fun. Um, and then my career after that focused more on volcanology and volcanic hazards and how we can communicate volcanic risk. And then I got interested in how um, a changing climate can affect not only the, um, the atmosphere and the oceans, but also the solid earth. In other words, it can affect volcanoes, it can affect earthquake activity, particularly in areas where sea level is changing rapidly or where ice is being lost very rapidly. And so I started to work on the relationship between volcanic activity and sea level rise, for example, um, and these sorts of things. And that inevitably got me involved in contemporary climate change, climate breakdown that we're seeing now. So it's been a sort of steady passage over about 30, 40 years or so. Hmm, okay. And just going to the volcanoes and, and rising sea levels, for people who don't know all that much about volcanoes, me being uh, <laughs> the one in this conversation. Um, how is that going to impact volcanoes and, I guess, the crust of the Earth? Well, what happens when sea level rise, rises is that it, the extra load of water, which is massive if you sort of spread it out across the whole of an ocean basin, it actually bends the crust around the margins of the ocean. And any volcanoes around the margins, and most volcanoes are actually close to the sea or, or form volcanic islands, um, those stress changes in the crust and as a result of that bending can actually push magma out. So in past times when we've seen rapid sea level rise or even rapid sea level falls, there's been a sort of spurt of volcanic activity. And there's no reason to think that we, we wouldn't see something like that in the future. Um, we wouldn't necessarily see more volcanic activity, but we, we, we would see it sort of lined up occurring over a, a smaller period of time, maybe. And the same goes for earthquakes as well, particularly in areas where you've got massive ice sheets like Greenland. As the load of that ice is removed, and there's three kilometres of ice on Greenland, so any faults underneath will be unloaded. They'll be able to move more easily, and you have the potential for huge earthquakes, magnitude 8 uh, or thereabouts. And that, I guess, would be quite catastrophic for areas of North America then on that eastern coast if, if Greenland started suffering. Well, yeah, and us. yeah. And us as well. I mean, the, the, worry, the worrying thing is if you go back um, 20,000 years to the height of the last ice age, um, Scandinavia was covered in an ice sheet exactly the same, two or three kilometers thick or thereabouts. Um, the weight of that ice was stopping any faults underneath moving. So they were accumulating strain, but they weren't generating earthquakes. But as the ice melted, the crust bounced back up again because the, the weight of the ice forces it down. And as that happened, you had these huge earthquakes. I was talking about magnitude eight earthquakes in Lapland, which is 
you know, that's a size equate we expect to see in Japan or Indonesia, not not in mm. the Father Christmas land. Um, and one of those earthquakes triggered a big submarine landslide, the shaking caused by the earthquake. That extended halfway to Iceland. It triggered a tsunami that was 20 meters high when it hit the UK. Um, and, you know, Greenland's going to do exactly the same thing by the looks of it. The whole of the North huh. Atlantic is already uplifting now because of the ice loss on Greenland. And I have German colleagues who uh, say we could see what they call a seismic response in the Greenland area within decades. And, of course, that has the potential to shake off submarine sediment and generate new tsunamis. Um, so it's a bit worrying, really, and it does highlight this idea that yeah. um, solid earth is, really, is involved in climate change. It's not just the atmosphere and the oceans. It makes so much sense that just so going back to what you said about the volcanoes and the oceans and how that weight sort of crushes down on it. I'm imagining that like someone almost popping a spot as in like that kind of pressure coming onto it. Well, yes, in, in a way. In I, a way? That's quite a good analogy. <laughs> there is a volcano in Alaska actually called Pavlov, which is erupting most of the time. So it has magma near the surface. And it is so sensitive that in the winter months, um, sea, you get a local sea level rise of about 15 centimetres because of low pressure weather systems. And the extra weight of that water on one side of the volcano bends the crust a little bit and it squeezes uh, magma out like uh, out of a toothpaste tube, the guys that work on it say. So, you know, that's how sensitive volcanoes are. Just a few centimetres can actually set them off if the magma's there and, and ready to go. Oh. And you were saying as well that you'd expect like a magnitude eight in Japan or Indonesia, but you've got places like Jakarta in Indonesia, which are dangerously close to being below oh. sea level anyway. <laughs> water, yeah. Yeah. They're, um, they're, they're on deltas and the delta, the water's being extracted from the deltas. Um, mm -hmm. So as well as sea level going up, Jakarta's going down as well, very rapidly. <laughs> and... Just let's let's stay on that then for Jakarta. How how does a a city, what I don't know if it still is the capital city. I think they they're changing yeah. it. How do they respond to that? Are they responding to that? Well, I, you know it's difficult because sea level, according to the IPCC reports, um, was going to be maybe a meter higher by the end of this century. But they're in increasing numbers of papers now, which look at two meters possibly or even more. Um, so mm. you know, it's impossible, really, to to guard against that sort of sea level rise by using mm. physical measures or, or or anything else. The only thing you can do is move, really. Mm. Obviously, huge tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people are going to be affected by this, um, and they just need to be got out of the the at risk areas. I mean, a two meter rise in the UK will threaten um, the towns of Boston and Spalding in Lincolnshire. So you know we've got our own problems here. Um, in terms of internally displaced people, which is we're going to right. face relatively soon. How soon do you think? Well, if that you know, two meters, if we do get two meters by the end of the century, that's eighty years or so, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the sea will be right in then near Cambridge and Peterborough because it's extremely mm. flat that area, and that that will see the worst of the um, inundation of the North Sea around that sort of part of the UK. Oh, that's uh harrowing isn't it exploding <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 for sure i live uh kind of near the coast i'm in bournemouth but we've got quite big cliffs 
Yeah. Uh, so I imagine they'll be able to hold up um, at least a little bit of it. Um, God, to thinking about Jakarta, then they they are well well and truly fucked, Bill. Well, it's not just yeah, and it's not just Jakarta. It's you know, particularly big cities sitting on top mm. of soft sediment where they're taking water out of the sediment and that's making it sink even faster. So Shanghai is another massive city with real problems in that regard. And of course, New Orleans, I mean, half of New Orleans in the US is already underwater. And it, you know, that was a big problem in uh, when Hurricane, um, Hurricane, 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 what was it? Katrina, is yeah, it? Yeah. Katrina, yeah. Hurricane Katrina struck in the, you know, the early 2000s. I mean, when once the levees are breached um, or over top, the water just stays there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Cool. Um, so lots of places like this around the world and, and they're really going to suffer enormously. Hmm. So moving then from from the sea and, and, and volcanoes into, well, actually, let's stay within the sea because there there are things at play within our oceans that are strangling and killing them, right? And that is to do with carbon dioxide can you explain that link because uh, everyone will know and will have watched the david attenborough about how our sea life is dying but mm. might not actually know how everything is linked there well fortunately for us a huge amount of the carbon dioxide that's pumped into the atmosphere and something like 2.4 trillion tons since the industrial revolution a lot of that dissolves in the ocean so it doesn't stay in the atmosphere. Trouble is it makes the oceans more acidic and acid will dissolve stuff, particularly the skeletons, the calcium-rich skeletons of marine organisms. So many invertebrates in particular are just the shells are being dissolved as a result of the more acid oceans. And the impacts on really all marine life um, is huge and you affect you know you affect one part of the marine food chain you affect plant plankton for example and you cause problems right the way up the chain to the very top so you know, the oceans are really suffering and of course they have other issues like um overfishing and plastic pollution and god knows what else so um you know the oceans are a real uh, it's a triple whammy if not more to be honest in terms of marine life survival yeah so yeah the sea is not in a good place is it i haven't really thought about this for 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 um a couple of weeks so so getting it back in is it's uh but it isn't a bad place and it's also yeah. you know one reason why a lot of these so-called geoengineering solutions are not solutions i mean they mm. many of them are involved with um cutting out solar radiation and, and trying to bring down temperatures rapidly but that does nothing about acidification of the oceans and if we carry on we add co2 at the same time that issue just gets worse and worse um, so yeah the oceans aren't in a good place at the moment and and it was, was anywhere to be honest no yeah <laughs> there's there's a lot to 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 take on but we have particular tipping points um that people like to talk about and i think there was as within the last few months something came out from the university of exeter saying that we're already past the point of no return on those tipping points. Um, what are the tipping points that we are looking likely to sort of cross next? Well, the, re the recent report said that there are a number of tipping points that uh, could be reached at just one and a half degrees C global average temperature rise, mm. or even a bit below that. 
And that's where we are now, because over the last five years, the global average temperature rise has been 1.3 degrees. So we're almost there. And these include the um, collapse of the Greenland ice sheet, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, and a, and a dramatic slowdown or shutdown of the Gulf Stream. Um, and those are all massively serious, obviously. If all the Greenland ice goes, that's seven meters of sea level rise. If West Antarctica goes, that's another five meters. And if we have the um, Gulf Stream associated currents shutting down, and they are extremely unstable at the moment, then that will bring much, much colder conditions to uh, the UK and Europe for a time at least. And it will also result in, in very rapid high uh, sea level rise across, along the east coast of the US and Canada. So you know, they're big, really big issues. And if we're not there yet, then we're going to be very soon. And I doubt very much we can avoid them, to be honest. Yeah. Is it kind of a case that like the we're already in motion, we're already towards it, and stuff that we did 10 years ago is starting to come into play now and it's just going to be on that constant, like it's always one step ahead of us or maybe 40, 50 steps. Yeah, well, it is, you know, there are many steps ahead of us because um, greenhouse gas emissions have been going up and up and up and up and up year on year on year, apart from a tiny little blip during the pandemic. So, you know, yes, it's the, what's happening in Greenland now, which is losing, getting off of 400 cubic kilometres of ice a year. And uh, now that's the result of warming that's, that's occurred up to now. Um, and it's it's difficult to see how how the green energy can be saved, to be honest, because we're seeing no sign of emissions reductions. And as we come out to COP27 in, in Egypt, um, we're on track for 10% emissions rise by 2030, when we need a 45% emissions fall. So you know, the picture is at least as bleak as it's ever been. Yeah, especially when our lovely new prime minister has said that he isn't going to be attending well, it looks as if there might be yet another U-turn there. Um, okay. <laughs> apparently, because Boris Johnson has said he's going to be going, um, just as a spoiler, I think. So I, I think that you know, there may be a U-turn coming there. But you yeah. know, COP27, I doubt very, very, very much is going to come up with anything because none of the other 26 COPs have done much, to be honest. And certainly mm. they've made not a single dent in at the rate of increase of global emissions. Yeah. It's um, it's tough to look for good news, but I suppose we have had good news relatively recently because we've had uh, Bolsonaro out of of Brazil. <laughs> yes, that, that's um, that is fantastic news. Um, let's hope that you know, the, there aren't any issues before Lula takes over. I know today yeah. they've um, barricaded, blocked three hundred roads, major roads, Bolsonaro supporters. So. Wow. Uh, the fight back uh, might be happening now. They're calling for a military coup, apparently. Oh, that's good because that's that's what you need in a stable, stable year. It's uh, I feel like it's just going mad. Bill, have, have you noticed things going more mad? Well, things are falling apart. I, this is what I've expected for a while. It's not. It's just you know things are slowly getting worse. Um, inequality, climate biodiversity, everything. Um, the Global Development Human Development Index fell for the last two years for the first time, and it's going to fall again this year. So we're going backwards. Even if you look at things like um, um, the um, life expectancy of men in the United States, 
it's down to 76.1 now, which is still falling. And Britain is seeing the same fall in in um, uh, you know, lengths of people are living. So everything is on a downward spiral, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. You it's, said um, yeah. Wow. It's, it's interesting that we can we get to be a part of it, right? Because I'm sure if we were part of everything falling apart at earlier points in history, it would have been far more unpleasant. Well, you know, it may be like that in the future anyway. Um, I, yeah. think, I think the scariest statistic, and I, I've been giving a lot of talks about hot hand service in hot hand mm. service, is that by 2050, um, we'll need 50% more food if the population rises as predicted. But climate change will mean that crop yields could be 30% down. Now that, on average, is a is a 50% cut in food intake per person. Right. We can't survive that. Global society will not survive that. Now, that's a, mm -hmm. a recipe for a widespread famine, war, civil strife, just everywhere. That's, yeah. that's society breaking. And that's in 28 years' time. And we may see things, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's going to be down 30% in 50 years' time, food supplies may be down 15% in, you know, not much more than a decade. Yeah. So, you know, we're getting into very, very deep shit, really. <laughs> yeah, it's a very bleak, bleak time to be paying attention to what's going on, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think, would it be right to say that at times you would have been called an alarmist. I think you mentioned that in the book. And and it must be odd now. Uh, have you have you had people come and say, like, oh, I don't think you're an alarmist anymore, if anyone's ever said it? Yeah, I've not been I've not had that much many accusations of being alarmist. I must admit, normally I've raised the term beforehand anyway by saying I'm I'm being alarmist in the sense yeah, of Yeah, that's alarmist. that's what I mean. Um but maybe I you know there hasn't been a I mean I I started using Twitter about two years ago because my agent said it's very good for promoting books. I yeah. wasn't planning it, but I've, I've had, you know, obviously you get the odd person, but mostly I've just had huge support on that, to be honest, which is really yeah. good. Yeah, because I think people are kind of understanding that there is something on, on the horizon and that might just be the shadow of societal collapse in various areas of the world. Yeah. Well, I don't think you can have societal collapse in one part of the world without having it everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we only have if we have half the amount of food worldwide, but on average, it's not we're not going to be insulated in the UK. I mean, you know, we're already seeing massive hikes in food prices this year, and that's not down to the Ukraine war. That's no. down to the impact of extreme weather, which has been catastrophic this year in many parts of the world. And it's not mm. going to get better. The last three years, every summer has been blisteringly hot with massive numbers of wildfires and loads of crop failures. And there's no reason to think next year's going to be any better or the year after. No. Yeah. I um I actually was in Australia at the early part of 2020 when the Blue Mountains there were on fire. And I'd been there a year before and then went to the Blue Mountains afterwards. And it was an ugly, ugly scene. And that wasn't even scratching the surface of <laughs> of what happened in like in the bush in Australia where there was some real yeah. Roaring, roaring flyers. And yeah, and as always, a. It's always been staggering that Australia's been one of the worst polluters on the planet and not loath to do anything about emissions when you know, essentially Australia was a desert, a few green bits around the outside. And when climate breakdown really gets going, it would be unlivable. Most of yeah. it, just you just won't be able to survive. 
So you know they're right on the front line, and they've got at least now they've got a government which is talking a little bit better in terms of what they're going to do about climate breakdown. Yeah, just shift all their brown coal to Japan. Just to interrupt the proceedings here to shout out the sponsors of the show, BetterHelp. Now the world is hard to inhabit. Things are tough. Life is difficult, and we all hold and carry that in different ways. And some of us. You know, sometimes it gets a bit too heavy. Life gets real tough. And talking to your friends about that sometimes just doesn't cut it. Sometimes just offloading isn't enough. Sometimes you need guidance and questioning from a professional. And that is where BetterHelp come in. They provide an online therapy service that is affordable, accessible, and used by millions of people all over the world. They have therapists in the UK and the US for you to access, and they can be accessed via video, telephone call, or in an online chat. Just head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read, complete your questionnaire and get put in touch with a therapist within 48 hours. Therapy has been one of the most positive things I've ever done for my mental health and it could well be the same for you. Now let's get back to the podcast. It's um, it is it's endlessly depressing actually when you look at the governments and how they behave around climate change and the climate crisis and the people who are skeptical of it also like i understand like a general level of skepticism in life could maybe be beneficial or definitely is beneficial but when it comes to something that is kind of inarguable like climate change seeing governments who are meant to represent an intelligent well actually i say meant they're meant to in theory represent like the intelligent part of of the population i guess in some way and they just ignore it yeah well they're not there's no such thing as a climate skeptic i mean the the science known better than any other scientific issue is unequivocal there's there are only climate deniers and they're Mm. people that refuse to refuse to accept it to be skeptical you have to have looked at the science and think well i don't think the science adds up these people aren't even scientists so they're they're not skeptics and the fact and newspapers like The Guardian now will, will not use the word sceptic because in, okay. in the context of climate because it's just wrong and it gives okay. these people kudos so they shouldn't have. Yeah. Well, the, thing with, the thing with natural governments is they don't, they don't get climate change yet. They don't understand how it's going to hit everyone, everything, the all-pervasive. They think, right, it's going to be a bit hotter, the weather might be a bit worse, and that's it. Mm. Sea level might rise a little bit. They have no idea. The implications of that, that one statistic I gave you, for example, what the implications of that would be worldwide and on their own countries. If they did, they'd be, you know, they'd be throwing everything at it. Do you think that speaks to our political system because it's so short-sighted and runs from, like, even even just if it was done perfectly and it was on done on a five-year basis, it's it's so short-term. They need to win the next election win the next election that just means that really important existential issues like climate change get left to the wayside because well, someone else will deal with it it's happened before i mean after the uh attack on pearl harbor in 1941 the, the u.s transformed its economy in less than a year from uh, a domestic peacetime footing to a war footing you know, they know they they built tanks, ships, aircraft instead of sewing machines, cooking pots, and whatever. So, if we wanted to tackle climate breakdown, we could do it within a year. The global community easily. Now, if if our 
be-all and end-all wasn't making um, more money and more wealth. If it was getting emissions down, we could easily do it. The, the will isn't there, though. The will isn't there amongst the elite um, who effectively control everything in a capitalist system. And they have no interest. They're, that's a system that's based on uh, short-term profit, greed, and exploitation. Whereas we need a system that's based on the greater good. And that yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah, I think the the tendency of the market economy to just fuck people's problems and go for the profit is uh, is something I'm just having to begin to understand because you actually can't look at climate without kind of thinking, hmm, mm. capitalism. Yeah, well, is, that, is that really what we should be doing? <laughs> yeah, capitalism won't can't solve the climate emergency, and it won't survive it either. So you know, it's gonna it's gonna go one way or the other. Uh, God knows what state the world will be in when it does by the time it goes, but it will go. What would you say are the alternatives then to capitalism? I don't actually. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, I think <laughs> the market markets. society where people are, you know, everything is done for for the common good. I mean, mm. it's it's so common sense. You know, it's it's just you think, why isn't this happening? Why, why are we all doing everything so that 1% of the population can be massively rich? What sort of idiotic system is that? And why are we putting up with it? It's astonishing. Um, yeah. Not enough people have, have, have had the scales fall from their eyes yet, but I think as, as climate breakdown really hits harder and harder, that will happen and people will say, this is just insane. Yeah. This. And people do need to kind of be angry or upset about that right because like we for for people listening it's chin like it is our futures the magnitude of this cannot be really understated yeah. we i guess need this anger to kind of fuel something fuel action um yeah we I, think, do. I feel yeah. like there are people who who believe that but still will do nothing and i, I th- well, how do you, because I'm people. sure you've spoken to loads of people. How how do you yeah. talk to those people? There are too many people. I mean, the, yeah, the, the very rich think that it's not going to affect them; that they will always be insulated yeah. from the worst of climate breakdown. But uh, as some has been pointed out recently, that won't be the case. I mean, if you know, if you're Elon Musk and everything's falling apart, and you've barricaded yourself in a hideout um, with you and your family and and uh, thirty or forty security guards. Do you think you're going to be able to order those 30 or 40 security guards around when everything's falling mm-hmm. apart? They're just going to tell you to piss off. So, you know, the rich, they're, they're never, unless they sort of hide away on their own and with nobody around with them, they, they won't have a future and they won't be able to lord it over whoever they have looking after them anymore. It's going to be a, a how... I'm just, let me just think about this one. You've written like speculative fiction, right? Yeah. If you were to write about like the next 40 years, what would you say the biggest event would be? I know you can't predict the future, Bill, but what's coming up? Well, 40 years is within that time scale of, of mass starvation, really. Yeah. You know, well within it. So, I mean, I, you know, I've, all, I've got loads of books planned, whether I have time to read, read them or not, but I probably uh, 
write one called The Village, which really looks at a, a village in the UK over the next 50 years and just how things fall apart. It might yeah. be. Um, and it will be things like the drought, extreme temperature, food security, food supply. People have to grow, try and grow their own food. Um, failures of energy systems, transport systems, just you know, public services in general. Um, and just a you know, slow degradation of, of life. Yeah. Quality of life. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing is the the quality of there will still be a life to be had. And that's well, not. Well, for a lot of people, they won't because you know, yeah. they will not survive. There will, be, there will be mass starvation on a colossal scale. And the other really scary thing, which is in the book, are these things called humid heat waves, where um, if you have a combination of temperature and humidity that takes what's, what's called a wet bulb thermometer reading of 35 degrees C and above, then the human physiology could only survive that for six hours or so. And then you just overeat and die because you can't sweat. And there are parts of the world like the North China Plain where you have 400 million people working in the fields and with no access to air conditioning. Um, I mean, a day with those sorts of conditions could kill tens of millions of people outright in 24 hours. We're, not, we're only seeing these conditions locally now, but they'll become more and more common um, in the decades ahead. So, <clears throat> if you're looking for a glimpse of hope somewhere, Yick, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's. A, I, I I don't think I am. I like. I'm I'm resigned to it being out of my hands. That's for sure. I know that there'll be things that I can do, but as in, if this is coming, I'm certainly not going to be the one person that's going to be able to stop it. And I could mentally prepare as much as one possibly could yeah. um but how do you deal with life without hope then i guess that's uh well there's always i mean no but in hot house earth i do describe how bad it'd be and how we can't dodge dangerous climate change but i also make the point that that makes it even more important than we act that every 0.1 degree c temperature rise that we stop is important um, and uh, however bad things get, there, there is always some degree of hope. Um, mm. And you know, it's, we have to have hope, don't we? Uh, you know, yeah. survive otherwise. Um, in terms of doing stuff, I mean, um, it's interesting. My my eighteen year old son has just gone off to Manchester to read politics and modern history. He's mm. he's um, on the Young Labour National Committee. His plan is to become an MP within a few years, and I'm pretty certain who he will do, and they yeah. get up there and sort it out himself, <laughs> which is, yeah. is a, a good way forward. Does he report that a lot a lot of his friends like that? Are they all like keen to get involved Massive, and are yeah. they all Massively suitably political. outraged? Massively political. Young people mm. generally, I, I find, are hugely political. I mean, I'm involved in with Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion and various other groups. Um, and there's lots and lots of young people involved. There's also large numbers of older people, which is... I, do you know what? I'm seeing yeah. that on the uh, the arrests that uh, yeah. are, I, I'm seeing on the news. There's lots of people. And that I think that's really uh, comforting coming from a young person because the, the reputation is, oh, I'm not going to be around to deal with it. It doesn't matter. 
Um, that's yeah. actually not the reality, which is really nice because I think we all kind of need that sense of solidarity as in we all give a shit. Yeah, but it is a, it is a political ideological thing as well. You'll find that 99% of these old people are left wing, mm. not right wing. <laughs> yeah. Because they're they're so closely tied denial denial and right wing idealism right is is very much intertwined. I've noticed it before. I spoke to uh, Mark Maslin, uh, put a, asked him to kind of debunk something that Jordan Peterson had said, put that on YouTube, and then all of a sudden I was getting comments about how I was a I was the type of person to put someone's grandparents in a prison camp uh, in Russia. Um, so like, and it's yeah, it's just such a politically. Well, it's because, because it offends a worldview, and I, it's because people, these people in in the backs of their minds realize that capitalism is not going to solve the climate emergency, and it's not going to survive it, and therefore they don't want to have anything to do with it. They'd rather pretend it wasn't there. Um, you know, it offends their worldview, and that that's the the big issue. Yeah, because it it really is like a from a. a group of people who i'd say maybe liken themselves as as clever and right um well, then all of them to to be denying reality in such an outrageous way it's just mind-blowing because of, like, i've spoken to some seemingly smart people who or like well, just, just just be like well there's been uh, quite a few cycles of of whether in the future there was an ice age or the sun. It's like they just start talking about stuff they haven't got a fucking clue about no. to hope that it confuses you as their uh, opponent. Um, well, the, the the staggering arrogance is when people, you know, in talks that I've given, there aren't many these days, sort of stand up and spout some other nonsense. And they, they think, look, I'm talking now to a, Somebody who's worked in this area for 40 years or so, and I, and I think I know better. I mean, the utters, I, I don't know if it's arrogance or just, you know, they're just so dim, um, or both. <laughs> it's staggering. Well, it must be. absolutely confident, but they're right. How do you deal with that, Bill? Because, you, like you say, you're 40 years in this industry, you are a legit expert, and then some idiot is like, yeah, but you're not right. How do you deal with that? Well, normally now, quite often at the beginning beginning of a talk, I say if there's anybody in the audience that doesn't accept global heating or thinks global heating is a good thing or thinks a new ice age is on the way, they can shut up because I'm not going to engage at all. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I um, get it first quite often. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's quite a good idea um, because the people that take that like contrarian view or contrarian standpoint just for the sake of it, once they've been called out, they probably have their tail between their legs a little bit. Yeah, and it's straight. I think they, there's a massive masochistic streak as well. I mean, they, you know, they force themselves to come and sit in a talk for getting on for an hour listening to something they don't believe in. So it must be quite, <laughs> quite hard work. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, well. I mean, I can't imagine that people like that have much better to do with their time. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, was it a lot worse? At any particular point in your career, like of of denialists shouting at you? <clears throat> no, not really. I mean, 
you know, normally if you get asked to come and give a talk, it's because the people organizing whatever you're coming to talk at have a, a broadly positive view. So that's never been an issue. It's always just been yeah. one odd person here and there. Yeah. As I said, even on Twitter, it's, you know, you get a few people, but very, very few, and I just, I just block them straight away. So it's very pleasurable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's taking, taking the high road. I like it. So you, you're potentially going to write an, another couple of speculative fiction novels. Hot House Earth is, is out now. How would you summarize Hot House Earth for people? Yeah. It's a small book. It's, sorry. It's a small book with a big message is what I said in it, I think. And so it's not huge. It's only about 190 pages um, split up into sections. You can, you can whisk through it quite quickly and you can get an idea of how all this started, what the Earth's climate has been doing in the past, how things now are very, very different. And then um, looking ahead to what sort of world we're facing in terms of sea level rise, extreme weather, disease, famine, drought, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, finishing off with you know, some ideas of, of where we might go next, how we might be able to at least um, bring emissions under control to some extent and uh, keep temperatures from from running away with us so it, you know it's got everything in there in a small space yeah. there are other books that have come out recently as well there's the one greta edited and um, the climate book which is you know, great as well but it's massive and it's written by lots of different people so it's more like a a scientific um anthology if you like yeah and what I can say about my book is that somebody point, somebody sent me a video showing a just a poor activist being unstuck from the road at one of the protests. And in her pocket, you could see Hot House Earth by me, <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic. And I'm glad yeah. to be having an impact there. Well, honestly, I think it, as reading part of your book has been part of my journey of being inspired to really start giving a shit. So I think you've done a great job and, uh, if you were trying to persuade people to uh, care, you're, you're doing a, a really good job. And I, thanks for your like brutal honesty and not trying to fluff it up. You know, I think that's it's needed. Yeah, yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for the kind words. And I just just hope it makes a, a little difference. Well, thank you very much for listening to that, guys. Hopefully, you're not in too much existential dread. If you are, I've been there. I've been there for quite a while, if I'm being completely honest, and I've spoken to my therapist, and I think it's quite a rational response to what is potentially happening in the future. But you shouldn't let the idea of, you know, potential planetary destruction and civilization collapse get you down all of the time, because there's plenty of opportunity for joy in the world. For example, I went on a walk the other day, and as I was on my walk, I saw an old lady looking at a fence. I was like, hmm, that fence doesn't look very interesting. I hope she's not having a bad day. And anyway, as I passed this old lady, she looked at me and called me over. And I went over there. And she was like, hey, are you, uh, are you married? And I was like, hmm, no, no, I'm not married. She's like, oh, how old are you? Um, yeah, I'm 27. Uh, how old are you? And then the lady goes, oh, I'm 78. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, you know, me and this old lady are vibing, having a good chat. And then she starts touching my arm. She's touching the sleeve of my fleece. My fleece is bright pink, so, you know, 
it calls it calls hands to the sleeves. That's all I say. It's, it's totally my fault that she touched my arm. She stroked my fleece. She was like, "Oh, so where do you live then?" And I was like, "Oh, right. Well, this is getting a bit strange." Told her, "Oh, I just live up the road." She's like, "Oh, I live here." She told me exactly where she lived, um, which is not good. And then I got on with my day, and I thought, you know what? Next time an old lady touches my fleece, I'm just going to give it to her because that's a nice thing to do. So that little interaction, it, it was quite a strange interaction, and it's not worth pointing out in isolation. But that exact same interaction has happened five or six times recently because my assumption is that Hillary, the old lady that I've met, because I know her name now, I've had this conversation quite a few times, so I did ask her name, and her, she has probably got dementia. And every time I see her, I'm just a new person to her, a new person to ask if they're married, a new person to ask if they're how old they are. A new person to crack onto. People like Hillary just living their lives. They're just going about cracking on people who are half their age without a care in the world. And I'm not saying that you should be Hillary. I don't think a degenerative brain disease is a good thing to have. But what I think is important is even though the planet is really, really depressing and, and things are really sad, there is opportunities for interactions with people like Hillary who can make your day. Imagine going out for a walk and having an old lady try and crack on you. And then it just happens again. And then again. And every time you see her, she has no fucking clue who you are. And you just have the exact same interaction. Now that is just one of the ways that I'm like, you know what? Life's not so bad after all. Should we be heading towards a future uh, that looks as dim as it apparently looks? I want more of those interactions with people. And I think it's within other humans in which we are going to find some kind of comfort, solace, and probably a solution to the issues that are coming up. So, yeah, the planet's fucked, but I spoke to an old lady with dementia and she cracked onto me and that made me feel good. Your story is going to be a little bit different to that, but you're going to find little ways in which you can still be happy in a world that is totally fucked because that is really, really important. And hopefully this message hasn't been lost in the story about me and Hillary. I'll keep updates on uh, Hillary should people want me to do so because I will see her again and I will have the exact same conversation with her. And every time I do that, I think people are all right and that's really important. So, yeah, if you want Hillary updates, hit me up. If you want any updates on the planet, maybe you should keep up to date with things and read some books on it, guys, because it's super fucked and it's super sad. And I just think... I'm, I'm not sorry for putting this podcast out there, but should you be at this point now, having listened to me waffle on for a while, just know that I'm going to be coming back to doing some solo podcasts where I just riff and talk uh, because I think that's going to be an important way for me to cope with things being mental and I'm going to be doing that after I come back from Colombia where I should be right now should things all have gone to plan and that's where I haven't recorded this podcast because it was pre-recorded anyway whatever you're doing now sorry for wasting maybe three or four minutes of your time there with that unless you didn't think it was a waste of time uh, but anyway, I love you. There's cool stuff in the description of the episode. I'm sure you know. It's probably not that cool. Maybe you've got better things to do. But if you haven't, go and check it out. There's loads of ways that you can support me, and I'd really appreciate that. You're all absolute heroes for listening. I hope you find yourself a Hillary. Love you, bye.